This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can join us with new episodes every Thursday. Now, you could say that this podcast allows us to time travel to different periods and places in English history. And today, that idea couldn't be more relevant because in 1752, the people of England and the rest of Britain actually time-travelled 11 days into the future. So, how did this happen? Well, it was because a new calendar, the Gregorian calendar, had just been adopted. But in fact, it took Britain nearly 170 years to move with the times. Well, joining me to discuss all the details relating to this temporal junction point that we now take for granted is Robert Poole, who is Professor of History at the University of Central Lancashire. Hello, Robert. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Nice to be here. Now, some of us will have been given 2021 calendars or diaries for Christmas. These will be based, of course, on the Gregorian system. But tell us, first of all, what is the Gregorian calendar? Well, the Gregorian calendar is the one that most of the world, certainly the Western world, uses. And it's called Gregorian because it was revised by Pope Gregory in sort of 1582 to 3. Originally, the Julian calendar, as it was then called, was promulgated by Julius Caesar. And it had actually got a bit out of sync by the time we got through to the 16th century. And so it was adjusted by Pope Gregory and promulgated to the Catholic world and then adopted in other countries later on. How long had the Julian calendar been in operation across most of Europe? Well, over 1500 years, the Julian calendar was picked up because the Roman Empire turned officially uh, Christian and then the Christian church adopted the Roman calendar. And the important thing was that the Christian church very early on in the well, early 4th century AD had a general council to decide what the date of Easter should be, because that was a bit of a complication. And in adopting a common way of deciding the date of Easter, the Christian church officially adopted this Julian calendar. So then 1,200 years after that, when it turned out the Julian calendar had slipped out of sync with the, with the natural year, with the solar year, if you like, by 10 days, the then Pope Gregory believed that he had the authority to change the calendar that the Western world would use. Right. So what year are we in by the time that Pope Gregory has intervened and decided that the Julian calendar is not fit for purpose? The Gregorian calendar change was actually made in October 1582, and it does two essential things. One is that it misses out 10 days in October, which brings the date in the calendar year back in line with that of the solar system. So, for example, the spring equinox is back on the 21st of March, where it should be. And the second thing is that it introduces new tables to calculate the date of Easter, because Easter is the most solemn commemoration in the Christian calendar. And it's very important that it should be observed by all Christians at the same time. But it's rather complicated to calculate because it's both lunar and solar. So there has to, there's no perfect way of doing it, but there has to be an agreed way. And Pope Gregory's calendar promulgated a new, hopefully agreed way to calculate the date of Easter. But that was controversial. Why was it controversial to bring in this change? Well, there had been the Reformation 50-odd years before, and the Christian world, which was already divided between the Orthodox Eastern Church and uh, the Church of Rome, divided further, and the many Protestant countries separated off and refused to observe the authority of the Pope. 
So when the Pope promulgated a new way to calculate Easter, the issue for a Protestant country was not, is it or isn't it more accurate, but does the Pope have the authority to do it? Um, they argued that as there had been a general council of all of the Christian churches together in 325 AD that had agreed this thing in the first place, it was going to take another general council of all the Christian churches to give people the authority to change it. Protestant countries at that time at the height of the battle between the Reformation and the Catholic Church were not about to accept an edict from the Pope on anything really important. Can you name some of those other Protestant countries? Because when we think of England, we think of Henry VIII, obviously, pulling away from the Catholic Church. But what other countries were there? Well, many of the German states, what we now see, the, the Scandinavian states, not quite the same as they are now. The Netherlands, the, the Low Countries, quite a lot of them. There's a large part of the Protestant world, particularly in Northern Europe. So why the change? I mean, could you go into sort of some of the detail around equinoxes, lunar cycles, this sort of thing? Yes. Well, it's particularly to do with the date of Easter. I mean, most of our calendar dates, Christmas and your birthday and so on, just go by the solar calendar. They track the solar system quite easily. But the problem with lunar calendars is that the lunar months just don't divide easily into regular solar months. And we know this with um, Islam and Hindu, which involve lunar ceremonies. You know, for us, they and the Chinese New Year, which is also lunar, they move around within the solar year. Although from the point of view of the lunar calendar, they say in the right phase of the moon, it's the solar year that appears to move. Now, the problem with Easter is that it's both lunar and solar, because if you go right back to the New Testament, Christ is crucified at the time of the Jewish Passover. And the Jewish Passover is decided as a lunar festival, but it's defined by solar calendar dates. So it's trying to track both at once. Now, it was very important for Christians that Easter should take place at the same time in the calendar that Christ was originally crucified. But also, because the Christian church wanted to separate itself clearly from Judaism, it also wanted to make sure that Easter was celebrated at a different time from the Jewish Passover. And so this Council of Nicaea in 325 AD had invented these tables involving golden numbers and so on, which was a very complicated calculation as to exactly how Easter should fall according to both the solar and the lunar calendars. And the actual formula for Easter is that Easter is supposed to take place on the Sunday on or after the first full moon mm -hmm. after the spring equinox. And the spring equinox is defined for these purposes as the 21st of March. So that means that Easter can be held at any time between the 22nd of March and the 25th of April. And it flips around from year to year according to how the solar and lunar cycles are related. Nobody really understands it except people who can do these golden number calculations. <laughs> and the reason that the Gregorian calendar was most controversial was because Pope Gregory introduced new golden number tables with a different element for calculating the date of Easter. And that seemed to Protestants to be that the Roman Catholic Church or the Church of Rome, as they called it, was taking to itself an authority to change the belief of all Christians when in fact it was only part of the Christian Church. Mm. So although it seems to us a bit sort of silly that people should reject a more astronomically correct calendar for religious reasons, actually it was quite serious business in the 16th century in the Reformation period. So it's not surprising 
that Protestant countries resisted it. But actually, quite a lot of Catholic countries decided to make their own calculations. They received this papal bull, this papal edict, you know, in the year the calendar was supposed to change. And so quite a number of them decided they'd check it all out, first of all, and then they make the change in their own good time when they were good and ready. So in fact, it was several years before even all of the Catholic countries had changed over. It was, it was a practical issue as hmm. well as a religious one. OK, we covered in the introduction that Britain didn't adopt the Gregorian calendar until 1752, hmm. um, which is you know, nearly 200 years after this became quite the thing in Europe. When exactly was it adopted in Europe and was the rollout quite smooth? Well, I wouldn't quite call it a rollout because of the way it had to be adopted by different countries by their own legislation mostly. But most of the Protestant countries came into line in 1699 because they worked out that the difference between the Julian and Gregorian one, which the Protestant countries were still observing, was going to slip from 10 days to 11 in 1699. And so there was going to be a kerfuffle and, a, and confusion anyway. So most of the Protestant countries, except one or two in Scandinavia and Britain, changed over in 1699. And by that time, the heat had gone out of the Reformation. Nobody was too concerned about papal authority. A Greenwich Observatory in, in England, for example, had been founded. And although England didn't change at the time, nonetheless, astronomy as a kind of argument had the upper hand. So most of the Protestant countries decided it was reasonable to go to a more accurate calendar. And they bit the bullet and they made the change. One or two Scandinavian countries, and particularly England, which always seems to be slightly out of step with the rest of Europe, <laughs> held out for rather longer. And in England, or Great Britain as it then was, it wasn't until 1752 that it was politically possible to accept a calendar which had originally come from the Pope. Anti-Popery in Britain was particularly strong and was a kind of sentiment, a bit like um, Little Englandism, I guess, in the in the 20th, 21st centuries. So the, the mood had changed and the, the tide had sort of changed as well. And I think perhaps based on rising scientific knowledge as well, you seem to mention that people were sort of generally getting around to the idea that actually this is actually, practically speaking, quite a good idea. Would that be right? Yes, yes. I mean, England had the Royal Greenwich Observatory. We were probably the leading nation in astronomy. The Greenwich Meridian was where everybody else took their time from. And it was a really a, a leading scientific nation. And it had become a little bit of an embarrassment that England appeared to be out of sync and not, not up to date with the latest uh, correct calculations for the calendar. But still, it took quite a political operation to bring it about. It was quite a sensitive issue, though it went reasonably smoothly. It was definitely a question of walking on eggshells in 1752. Can we get into the detail of how that actually happened in Great Britain in that time period? Yes. Well, the person who brought it in was Lord Chesterfield. And Lord Chesterfield was a famous um, Enlightenment wit, an educated man, a cosmopolitan man, well known for his letters to his son and for some of his writings. And as ambassador, he'd had problems reconciling the two calendars that were now 11 days different and decided it was really all rather rather irrational. Um, he also lived in Greenwich because now by 1750, he was Ranger of Greenwich. So he, he lived in the Ranger of Greenwich's house. So he was near the Greenwich Observatory and amongst his friends was Lord Macclesfield, a leading astronomer and a leading light in the Royal Society, Europe's leading scientific institution. So it seems sensible that Chesterfield and Britain should finally get the Gregorian calendar adopted. It just seemed like a rational matter of science and astronomy. So Chesterfield got in touch with his friend Lord Macclesfield to come up with a scheme for changing the calendar that would be astronomically accurate, mathematically correct. 
and he introduced it himself in the House of Lords and he made a great show of sophisticated learning. He talked about the need for science to be up to date, for Britain to be up to speed with modern science and about how religious prejudice and superstition and silly things like anti-popery were, were really very much in the past now. Mm. So he made it seem like a simple, long overdue catch-up arrangement. But it was actually quite politically sensitive. Uh, Lord Chesterfield had to privately square the Archbishop of Canterbury with it. The, the Church of England was still highly suspicious of the Pope, or the Bishop of Rome, as, as uh, militant <laughs> Anglicans called him. And so Chesterfield actually had to devise with Macclesfield a separate English way of calculating Easter that was not the same as the one supported by the Roman Catholic Church, but which produced exactly the same results. And that's still the case. Technically, the English Easter is calculated differently to that in, in the rest of the world, but the calculations always come out the same. Oh, that's really interesting. So that's a bit like an episode of Countdown where um, you've got the two contestants doing their sums. Um, maybe more like the Yes Minister. <laughs> yeah, yes, maybe. But it, they, they, you can get the same answer by doing different calculations. So oh. I, I can understand, using the Countdown sort of analogy, how that would work. So Easter is still in the same place once Britain has adopted this. How much work was it to push this through Parliament and the Lords at the time? Well, it got through the Lords fairly easily and then the Commons followed the Lords. He didn't make it a religious issue at all. It just seemed completely natural. And he later said he blinded their Lordships by science. They didn't understand any of it. So in, in terms of politics, it went through fairly easily. Chesterfield had prepared his ground extremely well, but implementing it was a bit more complicated than that, as you might imagine. Yeah, so how was this implemented exactly? Because obviously in the introduction we sort of alluded to this time travel notion of um, mm. people losing 11 days. Yes. Okay. Well, we've dealt with Easter. The simple matter for the calendar date is they had to knock 11 days out of the calendar. So the Act of Parliament simply said that Wednesday, the 2nd of September, 1752, was going to be followed by Thursday, the 14th of September, 1752. We would lose 11 numbers out of the calendar, but the week would carry on as normal. The theory was that everything would pretty much carry on as normal. And if I can give you a way of thinking about it, imagine that you're at a big banquet. At the last minute, it turns out that 11 of the guests can't come. So places 3 to 13 are no longer there. And they say to the people further down the table, OK, could you lot please move down 11 places to your left to, to, to fill up to, to avoid the gap? So everybody is sitting next to each other in a row, but their numbers have changed. But also imagine, they say, oh, by the way, could you bring your drinks with you, please? Okay. <laughs> so the drinks are at slightly different place numbers than they were before. And then imagine that not all of the waiters have been told about the change. So those who come with the meat main course all bring it to the right number of places. But those who come with the fish or the vegetarian options bring them to different places. And so some people have got the wrong meals because they're in the wrong places and some have got the right meals in the right places. And then some people end up with roast potatoes and the wrong vegetables, you know, with their curry. And other people end up with rice with the, what should be their steak roast dinner. And some people have got red wine with fish and some people have got white wine with steak. It's actually a little bit more complicated than that. And the reason why we get these kind of complications is because they have to make some exceptions for the calendar. Events tied to the natural world, they say, will stay at the same place in the natural year. So, for example, traditionally, grazing ground, people would have the right to graze cattle from the 1st of August following the corn harvest. You could then turn your cattle into, into the cornfields after the corn had been harvested. 
Now, if you keep that on the new 1st of August, actually it's going to be 11 days earlier in the natural year. The harvest won't have been done. So they have to say, okay, you can't turn your cattle out until the 12th of August, which mm-hmm. is what, by the way, gives us the glorious 12th, the start of the grouse shooting season and the, the angling off-season ends and all sorts of other things. Okay, And then, of course, there's a matter of fairs. If you've got a Michaelmas fair, Michaelmas is, is September the 29th. We still have some university terms and law terms called Michaelmas. Mm-hmm. Well, famously, Michaelmas was also a time when you slaughtered fatted geese. But if you've got 11 days fewer to fatten your geese, you can't have your Michaelmas feast, perhaps. So, with the Michaelmas geese not ready in time, with other produce not ready in time, it's decided that all fairs will also stay in the same place in the natural year, but that means they're numbered 11 days further on. So old Michaelmas is now the 10th of October. It's in the same place in the natural year, but its date has moved forward 11. Old Martinmas is the 22nd of November now, and so on. So all the fairs end up out of sync with the rest of the numbered calendar. Uh, your birthday stays the same. Your birthday is your glass of wine. That comes with you to the new date. But if it was on the same date as Michaelmas, now you'll have to wait 11 days for Michaelmas. Your birthday won't be on Michaelmas at all. Then the other thing that has to also keep its full natural term is money payments. So supposing I'd before September 1752, six months before, I'd borrowed um, some money off you and I was due to repay it on the 30th of September. Yeah. I would not have to repay that for another 11 days. I would get my full six months loan and you would get your full six months interest. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for the financial year. So previously, the financial year ended on Lady Day, the feast of Lady Day, the 25th of March. The new end of the financial year was the 5th of, of April. April. And yeah. that's what gives us our modern tax year ending on the 5th of April and starting on the 6th of April. All the financial things should stay at the same time, in theory. But there are complications. That's very interesting. So effectively, for a lot of things, the date has been moved along in line with the natural year. So I can sort of understand how they managed it. It sounds quite easy in theory then, but from a practical standpoint, I think maybe things do get a little bit difficult with wages, perhaps. Did workers complain and did bosses have issues around this? Yes, you do get problems and you do get complaints. Farm servants who've lived in for a year would normally be hired at a hiring at Martinmas, 11th of November in the north of England, or Michaelmas is September the 29th in the south of England. And those who move on to 11 days to old Martinmas and old Michaelmas. And so workers hired in that way would still have their full term of wages at the old natural seasonal times. But a lot of payments simply went by dates. But ordinary calendar dates, they weren't dependent on fairs or labour hirings or seasonal things. And so the government actually published in the in the Calendar Act some tables to show that employers, if they wish to kind of transfer to the new calendar dates, these were the amount of wages they should knock off to make a difference for the 11 days. So if you mm. want to keep your wages on New Year's Day or something like that or the first of the month, you can knock off 11 days in the year if you're paid yearly or 11 days in the quarter or 11 days in the month. And you get your payday a bit early. A lot of us are paid early for Christmas, aren't we? But uh, imagine if you were paid early for Christmas, but you didn't get your full month's wages. That would cause problems. Well, that was what happened for a lot of people in 1752. And there was real complaints. Some people were being paid early and getting less wages and other people had to wait for their wages, but were being paid the same. And there was a great deal of confusion because really there were two sets of regulations. 
And what with all the other confusions that the fairs were not on the same dates anymore, so they all had to be moved by notices and that people's birthdays were on one date and their, the fair that was on their birthday was on the other date and so on. There was all sorts of confusion. And so the almanacs, the annual calendars that people worked by, carried on printing both the new calendar dates and also the old calendar dates. So they would tell you when old Michaelmas was, old Martimus, which was useful for fairs, old Lady Day for the old tax year, old Christmas and so on. And into the early 19th century, I mean, you know, pretty much a human lifetime, a lot of almanacs were still printing these old dates and there was still some confusion. So, um, yes, there was a lot of discontent. And it's really surprising there wasn't more. It sounds as though the old habits died quite hard as well, or at least they died out with the people who continued those old practices. Yes, one problem was with the church, of course, because uh, a number of churches celebrated St Peter's Day. And in several parts of the country, there were fairs on St Peter's Day, the 29th of June. Right. Now, St. Peter's Day stayed on the 29th of June, so all the church services happened then. But if there was a St. Peter's Day fair, that was a fair, and that, I suppose, wasn't to happen until the 10th of July. So what happens is the church gets out of sync with the natural years because most of the fairs are moved. Well, they stay in the same place in the natural year, so they change their dates. But also parish festivals, wakes holidays, other festivities. The whole popular calendar moves back 11 days in the year, but the church calendar stays in effect 11 numbered days earlier and so what you actually get is a break between the official church calendar and the popular calendar of fairs and festivities and this gives you a bit of a a sort of um, break if you like between high culture and popular culture and so the fairs Mm. that were once things for the whole community the whole church everybody together they start to become more and more popular things and then this merges with the suppression of all sorts of popular festivities as disorderly and drunken and so on that starts to happen later in the 18th century. It sounds as though then by the time that all the people who were adopting the old habits still, despite the change, had sort of died, that this new calendar, this new Gregorian calendar, had been fairly well established by, I guess, the 1800s. Would that be right? Yes, the 1800s, the early 19th century, yes. But still with this difference between you know, the, the agricultural year and the festive year on the one hand and the legal and the church year, which went by the other calendar on the other hand, that was a sort of cultural fault line, I think, within English society. And it's interesting that as the new calendar has finally completely bedded in, you get the story being promulgated that there had been riots in 1752 because the stupid English people didn't understand the calendar change and they rioted against it. Isn't that a myth though? It is a myth but it's a really interesting one. The myth comes partly because of the confusion that there was in September 1752 at the time of the changeover. There were genuine problems but the idea that there are actually riots is something which we probably owe to Hogarth the artist. Hogarth lived in Chiswick didn't he? Hogarth's house. Is Ho- in Hogarth lived in Chiswick. Yes, yes, quite, um, quite near what's now the Hogarth Roundabout. His old house is is, is still there. Yes, and the big flyover, um, which people might know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but Hogarth in 1755, um, he pre- he painted a picture, which then became one of his engravings. So it was very popular and very well known, and it shows a riot. There's a banquet going on indoors, and outside there are rioters, and there is a banner. Um, which has been seized from the rioters as a trophy indoors. And the broken banner reads, give us our 11 days. 
And it looks as if Hogarth has actually produced an illustration, this is 1755 within three years, of people rioting against the calendar change. And in the early 19th century, this picture is looked at and um, rationalist secularists, if you, if you like, look at it and say, well, well, you know, how stupid people were in those days. You know, the 18th century was so riot prone, not more civilized like we are now. Look how stupid people were. They didn't understand the calendar reform. They rioted because they thought that if 11 days were being knocked out of the calendar, Calendar, they were going to lose 11 days of their lives. And this was part of the general kind of educated disdain for popular crowds and mobs, which is also taking place about this time. But the truth is, that although there was a lot of confusion and genuine muddle and upset, which is the fault of the calendar reformers, really, there were no riots as such in 1752. What Hogarth was illustrating was an election riot because in 1755 there had been a very highly contested election in the county of Oxfordshire and the old county Tories were actually finally ousted by the establishment Whigs and it was an election where there was a lot of barrel scraping a lot of uh, sloganizing and one of the minor side issues was the complaint that Christmas had moved and people wanted their old Christmas and their old fairs and so on and the Whig government had fouled everything up and the Tories made a few songs and squibs out of it. And so the riot that Hogarth is depicting, he's really saying, look at this election riot, you know, look at what the wretched level to which politics has descended. And so this broken banner is actually a satire on Tory election slogans. It's not an illustration of a calendar riot at all. But 50 odd years later, it's taken to be an illustration of a calendar riot. And I certainly know that my, my father, who is very much a secularist and a rationalist, told me the story of the English rioters who didn't understand things and rioted for 11 days of their lives. I wrote a book about this, but he died still believing that there really had been calendar rights and I simply hadn't actually found, look, looked hard enough to find them. So in sort of a cartoonist sense, he wasn't being completely contemporaneous, but he yeah. was uh, using this to sort of make a point. Yeah, he, he was making a political point about the low state of politics, if you like, and the poor state of election slogans. Mm. But actually, 1755 is not very far from 1752. And as we all know, you know, dates and times tend to get collapsed as we look backwards. So it was not surprising, perhaps, that 50 years later, people just thought that Hogarth was illustrating a real calendar riot. Of course, there were some practical aspects of this lost 11 days, which might have involved people losing a birthday. So what would have happened there? Well, you were supposed to just celebrate your birthday on the new date. But of course, what then happens if your birthday is one of these 11 missing days, if you're hmm. September the 3rd, 4th, right up, right up to the 13th? And there wasn't really an answer to that. So people did lose a birthday one year, but I guess they would just have picked the nearest date and celebrated on that. But come next year, everybody's forgotten and they, there are still the, the days are back in the calendar. So it wasn't really a long term issue. No. People were able, if you like, to take their glass of wine to the new place, despite the confusion uh, elsewhere in the serving. Yes, if you just forget the calendar for a minute, you can still celebrate your birthday, can't you? Whenever right, it was going yeah. to arrive. I suppose you have the same thing these days with um, the leap year, where if you're born on the 28th of or 29th of February, I should say, you get it every four years, don't you? Yes, pe people still find some work around for it, don't they? But yes, uh, yes, uh, 29th of February birthdays. Uh, you still have a birthday every year, I guess, on the 28th, but every four years you have a really special kind of Olympic birthday. So I, I'd rather wish I was born on February the 29th, actually. It could have been an improvement. <laughs> Regularity and, and absolute order is not always the best, best way to judge things. No. Well, given the fact that there was a bit of chaos, uh, how do the newspapers and periodicals and chroniclers of the time sort of record these events? 
Well, they print all the tables and then there are people writing in. There weren't that many newspapers. So the same few letters tend to circulate all around the newspapers. They go to the the London press, picks up what's written in the provincial press. And then it's the London press circulates around the country and then it's picked up again. So the same small number of stories about the Canada change actually end up all over the place. A a bit like, you know, a sort of Internet myth these days. There are no real stories of calendar rights. And I've looked in just about all the newspapers I could I could find. I hadn't found any actual calendar riots. And Hogarth gives us an explanation for why there weren't any rather than why there were. But the one story that does go around in Christmas is the story that in order to find out whether to celebrate Christmas on the old December the 25th, which is now sort of January the 5th, or on the new December the 25th, people in Glastonbury in Somerset look at the Glastonbury thorn, which is supposed to flower on Christmas Day, on the real Christmas Day. And the myth is that this Glastonbury thorn planted near the church in Glastonbury by Joseph of Arimathea, the first Uh early Christian to actually come to England long before the Pope and official Christianity came around. The idea that England has an earlier, truer form of Christianity. And the Glastonbury thorn was said to have have flowered that year, not on the new December the 25th, but on the old Christmas Day, which was now January the 5th under the old numbering. So according to the uh, newspaper reports, large numbers of people continue to celebrate Christmas on the old Christmas Day because that was what the Glastonbury thorn dictated. And that's another kind of slightly condescending uh, rationalist way of of looking at things that people didn't bother with a new calendar which was astronomically correct they went by old superstitions by the flowering of a thorn but actually you know thinking about it it actually made some sense to celebrate christmas on the old day didn't it because if you just had your martinmas fair only a month before christmas 22nd of uh, november if you're in the north of england this is another north south issue christmas is coming a bit too soon you're not ready for it it's coming 11 days Mm. 11 days too soon and not only that But if you wait until January the 5th, there's a much better chance of snow. And one reason why we don't have quite as many white Christmases as we used to is because Christmas takes place 11 days earlier. It's a little bit too soon for snow. You might be more likely to get it in January. Well, these days, of course, um, we're lucky to get it at all. So looking back at this whole history of this change of the calendar, we're on the right track now, obviously, with, with the one that we have, this Gregorian calendar. Well, it's astronomically more accurate, yes. I mean, it's still in about sort of 30,000 years. It might have slipped out by another day. I think there might be a provision somewhere in the small print for that, but it is very astronomically accurate. But I guess in in the longer term, you can see this looking back as an episode in which the, if you like, the artificial year, the human year, the calendar year, the year that we use for most things, has slightly slipped out of sync with the old natural year. The harvests, the fairs, the festivals are now taking place at a slightly different time from the, the official dates or the old, the old dates when, when they should be doing. And the privilege, if you like, has been given to astronomical consistency rather than to natural time. And we've seen in the 200, 250 years since then, I think we've got more and more divorced from natural time. Well into the 18th, 19th centuries, people used to be able to read sundials, for example. You could look at a sundial, you'd look at the position of the sun in the sky and get a pretty good idea of what the time of day was. Church clocks were pretty accurate, actually, certainly to within a quarter of an hour. And and people could estimate time in their own ways. I'm not sure now with artificial daylight and, and it being daytime in the night in winter and so forth, 
people can't read sundials. They don't usually go by shadows and the sun and the moon for directions, for navigation. We've lost all those cues of the natural world that we used to have. And all you have is a digital readout that my computer looking at me, you know, tells me now the time is 12.41. Okay, if I look out my window, I can see that, you know, Greenwich Mean Time, the sun is probably just about going down. But I get my time from the computer just the same. In fact, younger people now actually seem to find some difficulty reading analog clock faces. They want to be told the time, yes. but they don't actually want to tell the time, not by looking at a sundial, but not even by looking at the hands of a watch. They just want a digital readout and the rest doesn't matter. And I think it's probably true that modern life has gradually fallen out of sync with the natural world. And, yes. and people no longer calculate time by these natural cues. And I think that's a bit of a shame. Well, I think 24-hour working and shift working and all that sort of thing has probably exacerbated that situation. We are less and less in tune with our circadian rhythms as a society, I think. Uh, would you Definitely, agree with that? Definitely, yes. And if, if we had British summertime all the year round, as well as, as some people are advocating, we would lose track with, with the natural cycle of the day even more. We'd be getting up, you know, much too late and going to bed in the middle of the night, the day would be even further out of sync with a natural day. Yes, well, I was going to say, actually, do you think it's time to look again at having British summertime all year round? Absolutely not, no. Anybody who gets up reasonably early will tell you how light in the morning is a really important thing. If you're a farmer or if you work in the natural world, you want a bit of light in the morning. And those of us who remember, you know, the 1969-ish attempt actually having British summertime in the winter. We had it for two years. I went on to school in absolute darkness in the middle of the winter. It was absolutely miserable. And I know people come out with clever figures saying, well, it's slightly safer overall and better overall. I can tell you nothing can compensate for the misery of spending what seemed like months going to school in the freezing dark in winter. And it's a north-south thing as well. I mean, if you go further north, there's even less daylight in winter. It might be all very well if you live somewhere near the Mediterranean, the south of France, to have a kind of standard European clock time. But I can tell you, people up in Scotland, you know, have far less daylight to play with. It's a north-south issue as well as an east-west one. You can't ultimately standardise time over vast areas because the earth is round and the, t the day length of the days really is different in different parts of the world and no amount of standardization could give you that the next thing we'd be telling him uh, we'd be saying everybody in the world would have to have midnight and midday at the same time which would be a complete nonsense it, very interestingly although we now have you know officially we have some kind of atomic time to actually measure the intervals of the seconds they regularly adjust the atomic time to keep up with the Earth's rotation. You know, we have these extra leap seconds added every now and again because mm. the Earth's rotation is slowing down very, very slightly. So we might have Caesian time calculated to the nth decimal place, but still, every now and again, we have to knock off a second to keep computer time, Caesium time, in line with the natural position of the Earth in the heavens, and long may it remain so. It's a real lesson, I think, then, isn't it, uh, as we sort of close this podcast discussion, that... Uh, Perhaps we need to move more in sync with the Earth's natural motions and try to move a little bit away from trying to regiment and timetable everything. Yes, ours are not equal winter and summer. So perhaps that's the real legacy and lesson of the introduction of the Gregorian calendar, is that whilst it has been largely successful by the sounds of things, it still isn't completely perfect because nature doesn't align completely with it. No calendar can be digitally perfect, especially if it's trying to align with the natural rotation of the Earth and the natural seasons. I think we need to be more in touch 
with natural time and natural time calculation than we are. And in fact, needed to be more more in sync, if you like, with the Earth and its own natural rhythms is actually part of the fight against climate change as well. We've got completely out of sync with the way that the Earth operates. It's very much to our disadvantage. If we can stay in sync with natural calendars and natural time rather better, I think that will be very much in line with the, with the general need to get back in line with the natural cycles of the Earth that we're going to have to do for, for climate change anyway. Well, that's something that we'll uh, think about as we move into a new year and 2021. Uh, Robert, thank you very much for your time and for talking to us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I wish you a happy new year. Mm. Uh, Happy new year indeed. And a happy new year to you too. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll look at superstition, magic and the evil eye in the Roman world. 2,000 years ago, scientific thought was in its infancy, which meant that everything in the world was explained in terms of religion and magic. Thanks for listening. See you next time.